Hi, welcome to the Red to Black podcast. Here, you will learn how to invest in highly profitable private businesses to create abundant financial freedom. If this topic interests you, we invite you to subscribe to our channel. This podcast is hosted by Werner Minchel, ex-Marine aviator and current real estate investor, and Mario Parzino, current Marine infantry officer and business investor. All right, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, folks. Uh, Mario Parzino here. We're going to discuss how do you evaluate the underlying economics of, a, of military hardware. Specifically, we have six topics to discuss this afternoon. Number one is Marine Corps Warfighting Lab and its connection to industry. Number two is how DARPA improves your camping gear. Number three is how to utilize military hardware in an unfree world for more personal freedom. Number four, Nation Building 101, Rebuilding a Nation from Within. Number five, how to outmaneuver the enemy and defuse censorship. And number six, how to never run out of funding during a building project. Okay, great. Thanks so much, Mario. And tonight, I want to introduce one of our guest speakers. It's Elise McGill. Would you mind introducing yourself for us? Elise McGill. I'm actually the co-founder and executive vice president of business development for Vault Enterprises, which is a developing offensive and defensive capabilities uh, for the Department of Defense, um, as well as uh, developing a launch vehicle to provide access to space for nano satellites. Man, that sounds simple. Wow. <laughs> it's so simple. All right, you're going to have to dumb everything down for us here. At least, but uh, I want to talk about the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab. Uh, we register a demand, so I'm kind of the guy on the ground who has a problem with a piece of gear or a system, and we register a demand to Marine Corps Warfighting Lab and really Marine Corps Systems Command, and they take our language and put it into some engineering terms, and they push it out to industry. Can you kind of explain your connection to Marine Corps Warfighting Lab? Sure, absolutely. So. I originally started um, engaging with the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab about a couple years ago. Uh, we attended a hypersonics conference down in, uh, in Virginia. I met with uh, some, some folks at this conference as well as with the Deputy Director of the Rapid Capabilities Office uh, in, at Marine Corps Warfighting Lab at the time who is now retired. Um, we had connected previous months before actually, became, you know, developed a relationship and uh, and we discussed our capabilities and what we were developing, and they were certainly um, aligned with the interests of the Marine Corps. And so, it just so happens that we, we when we attended this conference, and uh, a gentleman was speaking from from the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab, and he uh, was vetting uh, companies that were present at that day, and had written the name down of our company. There were three companies, I guess, that he had written down, and uh, we happened to be one of them based on the, what he had received from information for us. And so we kind of just circled back. Uh, we connected the dots between the deputy director of the Marine Corps War Final Lab at the time and, 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 uh, and, the, and the general who was speaking that day, and it, it, it moved out from there. So we had a meeting the very next day uh, in Quantico, and it was extraordinarily productive. In fact, I really enjoyed working directly with, um, you know, the warfighters right inside of the lab, and they were able to articulate their needs, which was very different than than our, you know, the previous years of business development that we had done. 
across the services. So it was much more intimate and we got a much clearer idea of the ways that we could we could adapt our technology to meet um, their needs in theater. So it, and address evolving threats and provide a, a better product at a lower cost um, than some of the current systems that they're utilizing. Oh, I'm sure that impressed the Marine Corps when you said lower cost, we're so cheap. <laughs> Yes, well, you know, they, they're very focused at the S&T level and being able to demonstrate value, not only to, for the taxpayers, but obviously to be able to produce a, a system or systems of systems that are, that are, are relevant to their needs um, that are currently unmet. Yeah, I'd like to go into that. So the Marine Corps is really into beans, bullets, band-aids, and batteries. But you, you're uh, working with engine technology, and we burn a tremendous amount of diesel in the Marine Corps, and we're trying to become a little bit greener. But uh, can you kind of explain what your company does with engines? Oh, okay. So, well, we had uh, my, my business partner, um, Carl, is, is a propulsion engineer, and he started a company called Applied Thermal Sciences. It was actually established in 89, incorporated in 98, which is when we got our first um, government contract, DOD contract, and um, we had three core technologies at that under ATS that we developed and commercialized. Actually, one of them was commercialized, patented, and then sold to um, a company called ESAB in Sweden. Uh, we developed hybrid arc laser welding technology to modernize Navy shipbuilding um, with the support of our senators here in the state at the time, and uh, we ended up uh, we ended up winning a $22 million contract from General Dynamics BIW, and we had product that was delivered to the fleet. Um, so our, our products that we developed with that hybrid laser welding technology for modernizing Navy shipbuilding was, was critical in our capacity to deliver the product in the end. So it was you know low volume manufacturing. We were completely vertically integrated. And uh, we have product that covers the tops, all the safety berms and personal protection barriers that cover the tops of all three DDG-1000s are actually, were actually produced by our company. Um, and we beat out composites and the Navy, of course, loves steel. So we were really able to provide them a superior um, alternative to traditional uh, welding methods uh, for the, the development of these panels and these safety berms. Uh, and then our second technology was was uh, a, a an engine technology that's actually extraordinarily uh, transformational for it would be transformational it would have been transformational for our military had they continued to just finish off the development of it but it, you know the graveyard that they what is it the uh, the valley of death kind of so to speak comes yes. into play here with respect to the engine but we developed four prototypes of this. Uh, the Hypertech is actually, it's dubbed Hypertech engine, uh, and the Navy wanted that engine uh, for their unmanned sea surface vessels um, and provide them far greater efficiencies. So the, the engine was not my forte. I actually focused heavily on, on vault from the beginning, um, but it's a natural fit for the Navy, and hopefully I will be able to demonstrate uh, the five to seven horsepower version of that, of that system in an unmanned platform, ground-based platform, but we could also demonstrate it in the air as well. But it's a fully scalable system, a fully scalable engine rather, and it um, it doesn't utilize oil internally and, and the power to weight ratio is through the roof, um, so it would obviously reduce the weight of the, so for logistical 
you know, transporting goods across the desert and gas and fuel, right? It would actually reduce the, drastically reduce the weight of the systems, uh, you know, of the vehicles and be able to provide more power and efficiency. So the Department of Energy wasn't on board with that because there's a, you know, there's this, there's a, a situation where they protect a lot of industries out there that are in existence and they that don't want to be disrupted. And so the engine has taken a pause, but it's very close to demonstrating. So we're also going to be simultaneously pursuing funding to finish that off and, and get that to our military customers, hopefully the Navy. <laughs> Is there any commercial application down the road? Oh, absolutely. The engine... Anything that utilizes a traditional internal combustion engine can be replaced, essentially disrupted um, with this engine. Um, and it can operate on any fuel and be made out of multiple materials. So for UAV, the UAV market, for instance, there are a lot of um, performance and uh, cost life cycle problems with the engines there. I mean, they're throwaways and they're constantly discarded. Um, it's just, it's not sustainable and on, by any stretch of the imagination, but this would be a perfect engine for the uh, UAV market. Uh, for our military, you know, I'm sure that the, you're, you're aware of uh, the systems that are utilized by the Marine Corps, and I think that th they would be an ideal, um, they would be an ideal customer for this, for, for those mission sets that, in, that involve um, drones, UAVs. Yeah, Warner, Warner actually flew some. UAVs in Afghanistan. You want to jump in here, Warren? I have about 600 hours employing UAVs, and a question I have for you, at least, because taking it down to business, I'm just curious. Can you take this? Can you take this to the civilian business market? I know guys traveling all over the world and adventure seekers, whatever it is, people, probably mostly in the film industry, they would probably love to use this type of product, so they're spending less money on fuel and diesel and whatever else. And so my question is, can you take the commercial market? And then I'm just curious with your laser arc welder, I'm just curious what your profit margins are. How do you, what's the what's the business model look like with your laser arc welder? And then also, can you take the engine to the civilian UAV world? Those are great questions. Uh, you know, with respect to the, the engine um, and its transfer, its commercialization, the challenges really lie in, in the in the bureaucracy that exists um, across all these sectors that where our where our technology would be disruptive, um, mind you, uh, absolutely we should. Th the goal would be to partner with like an airframe developer, and then we would like to develop a whole fleet of um, brand new uh, unmanned air vehicles and at a far lower cost for our military. I mean, the, the engine can be made out of graphite, so if you can imagine the it could, the disposability of it. Um, there's a lot of really great, uh, a great mission sets that can be addressed that current engines cannot. For instance, because it doesn't utilize oil internally, it can operate in any orientation. Um, and uh, you asked about the laser welding technology. Again, this was not my line of business. Uh, while we were, while I was working with Carl, uh, I actually worked for Carl at the time as a consultant and then as a full-time employee. Um, he, they were just focused on trying to commercialize that technology, but um, we, they sold a patent, and then at the end of the road, when we were aiming to transition that technology to, for the modernization of Navy shipbuilding, we were, we were stopped there as well. Um, they, the reason that they gave was that, uh, that it would disrupt the labor union, or it would, they would have flack from the, la uh, the labor unions. 
um, but they didn't really provide us any reasonable explanation. You know, the taxpayers had invested a lot of money um, to support the development of that technology, and it's amazing, you know. But again, we maintain the engineering expertise for its applications, um, but we're not focused on. We sold that patent, uh, and we uh, do not. Not, we're not actually actively trying to uh, commercialize that as a, as a business unit under Vault at all. Um, but we do have a lot of it has a lot of space applications as well, you know, for for ground facilities. I mean, the, the engine tech. I mean, the um, sorry about that. The uh, the la the hybrid arc laser welding technology it can be utilized for roads and bridges and um, the weight and the the strength of the product in the end is, is superior to the use of traditional welding um, techniques. Um, it doesn't, there's a lot of uh, thermal deformation that deformation that, that comes into play with traditional welding and we, and it's also very high speed our process. So there's not a lot of uh, thermal deformation that, that occurs in the products in the end. Um, but it has, again, I'm sorry, I can't provide you with, with um, you know, a plan for that technology because that's just not our, our area of focus any longer. But it's certainly, like I said, the engineering expertise and the ability to go ahead and, and, and help apply that technology for, for use across a number of, of, of critical sectors uh, is, is still exists within our business. So, that, so those are the multiple fascinating points. At least, would you mind just... Okay. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'll say so. Those are multiple fascinating points. Uh, a few things I'm hearing is, or what you're saying is, in terms of laser technology, there's a patent that's been sold. So the opportunity there is possible advisory role on the engineering side, and then on the airframe side, what what you're saying is there's a possibility. The direction you go depends on funding, which is every business's obstacle, especially when you're dealing with high tech businesses like you're in, it's funding is essential. So maybe there's like you're saying, there's a pivot point to go uh, from military, which is blocking you because of, I know the industries you're talking about, because we have an apartment in an area where one of those industries are, and going towards a civilian role where maybe you develop your own UAV, uh, UAV aircraft production business and you market it to the film industry or, and other individuals who have who are already dealing with heavy heavy loads and and definitely huge operating budgets just to move those heavy loads that to me sounds like that might be a a huge uh, or a great pivot what are your thoughts Mario yeah this this brings up kind of d t t topic two is DARPA and how it proves you can't be gear there's a there's a major uh, d bureaucracy at the Pentagon and in uh, on the East Coast, of how gear is developed, and the Marine Corps went around it. We've we've gone around that bureaucracy, and it really came down to saving Marines' lives in Iraq. Um, we had unarmored Humvees that we drove around and hit IEDs with, and we lost a lot of young men early in the Iraq invasion. And the Marine Corps just sidestepped the DARPA process or the military-industrial process. We went right to um, Oshkosh vehicles up in Wisconsin and bought some really fantastic vehicles like right off the shelf and saved a bunch of Marines lives. And we got in a bunch of trouble for that because we didn't go through the normal procurement process, which you could take like a decade. We just simply went out to industry. We wrote a bunch of checks and we got excellent vehicles. Uh, any thoughts on that, Elise? 
Well, I think that the Marine Corps is leaning very forward on that front. I found it to be the most um, efficient in getting from point A to point B, understanding what the needs of the warfighter, the warfighters are, um, and getting to engage with them directly was really fantastic. And they also stripped layers um, of bureaucracy from within their own organization. So I understand that there is a, a panel, I think, I believe it's like four generals that sits on this panel, and there's not a lot of people in between them. They cut a lot of middlemen out, whereas the other organizations, you need to move through layers of bureaucracy. So I didn't find, I found that the uh, Marine Corps was um, most agile in trying to address the needs of the warfighter um, um, in an efficient and cost-effective way. I was very, I'm extremely impressed with, with the way that they operate as compared to the other services. My personal experience. I will take that as a compliment. So yeah, DARPA stands for Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. Any thoughts on DARPA and their, their development of gear for the warfighter? So DARPA is a unique animal. Um, you know, my, and again, I'm speaking from my personal professional experience with trying to, to to work with DARPA and through DARPA, and we had advocacy internal to DARPA at the program management level. But the problem that I, I see uh, with DARPA is that it's part of a larger mechanism for for large programs. You know, they're very focused on the large programs um, as opposed to the more disruptive um, value add kind of 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 technologies within at least within the hypersonics realm so there there a lot of the money flows in all in the same directions and then there it's a tiered structure and the small to medium-sized businesses that typically get awarded are within that structure in some way shape or form you know whether it's that they are being targeted for acquisition or um they're being uh they're bringing something to the table that then can be leveraged by the larger companies and i i tend to believe that that's you know, a fundamental problem with our acquisition system um, as a whole, you know, because there's, in order for our economy to be healthy and uh, sustainable, as uh, I'll use that term, even though I don't like to use it very often, but it's, it's, it's not sustainable for, to have the level of industry consolidation that we've watched um, unfold. It's not healthy for, um, you know, for, for, saving taxpayer money in any way, shape or form, you know, it, it blocks a lot of opportunities and it also blocks the delivery of capabilities that are critical to defending, um, you know, our nation and our, our interests abroad. So um, it's, I have a lot to say on this subject matter, but I don't know that I want to go too deep into it. <laughs> Just trying to temper my, my thoughts here on that front. So you brought up uh, something that'd be, you know, it's great for our listeners, which is, the difference between a bureaucratic funding system and an open free market system. Because if you took your, say, you're talking about different technologies and they, they go through this approval process, and I understand why, but they go through this approval process and maybe you get chosen, maybe you get to, maybe you don't get chosen. Well, if you don't get chosen, you're kind of, you're, you're up the river. If you're in the civilian private world and you're going to private equity, you go to 100 people that say no, but then you find that one guy that goes, hey, I love your idea. And he or she says, yeah, we'll give you the money to do that. So, and, and I get it. There's there's also between the civilian and the private, or the, sorry, the, the civilian and the DOD sector, there's also 
TSSCI, all that type of stuff that that's required to be navigated. So there's definitely a, another level. There's definitely an issue with that in terms of funding because you can't take a TSSCI or a top secret project out into the the normal world and just fund it without going through the proper channels. This funding is fascinating. What your thoughts, Mario? Should we talk a little bit more on this funding aspect? Yeah. So it comes down to working within a system and figuring out who the players are and playing the game correctly. Uh, you you got to admit, General Dynamics and Boeing they have representation in Washington D.C. and in the Pentagon. They have friends in the Pentagon. They hire out of the Pentagon. Where is General Dumford now? He's on the board of General Dynamics. Is that correct, Elise? General Dunford went over to Lockheed Martin, as did the director of uh, DARPA who, about a couple weeks before Joe Dunford did. So okay, um, got yeah. Lockheed, Lockheed Martin, Martin, not not uh, General Dynamics. Okay, so you got uh, you got three really big pairs: Lockheed Martin. We got some feedback. If if we can mute, there we go. Um, okay, so correction. We've got three big players. You got Boeing, you got Lockheed Martin, and and um, Raytheon. Raytheon, there we go. So General Dunford left. So he, there's a revolving door from the Pentagon into the military industrial complex. So there's a game. For, so Warner, you asked a question about funding. If you want to be in that space, you have to get you have to get that game down. You have to understand how that game works, and you have to have friends in the right positions, and that that guarantees you or that helps you out with funding. If you're trying to do this as an outsider, it's very difficult without some friends in the Pentagon. Any thoughts? Yeah, I have a whole lot of thoughts on that front. I mean, so, and you know, from the funding perspective, now I could move from the engine technology that we developed and from the hybrid laser arc welding technology that we developed over to Vault. So in the hypersonics realm um, specifically, we spun Vault as a core technology off of Applied Thermal Sciences, and we had received initially from the Office of Naval Research, we see, received uh, 750K, and then we took internal um, funding, money, profits, and we invested an additional $4 million into the technology and conducted 22 flight tests of our system and catch the this um, under a high power rocketry waiver through the FAA um, in out of the blueberry fields in mid coast Maine. So we developed a, a flight test platform that would help to advance the state of the art in hypersonic air breathing propulsion specifically, not, not just rocket rockets that fly at hypersonic speeds, but the air breathing piece is critical for stealth and a whole range of other reasons um, from a tactical perspective. Uh, in dealing with the emerging threats uh, as well as the existing threats from our for, from our adversaries, you know, so we we aimed to advance that capability really quickly, um, as well as the as be able to flight test all the subsystem components rapidly and iteratively, um, utilizing our system. So simultaneously, we're developing the systems capabilities, but we're also flight testing the technologies, the subsystem level technologies within our system, so that we could you know, advance the best solutions in the end and flesh out all of the, the technical barriers to advancing that technology that we've encountered over the, over the decades, you know, aside from the fact that the funding ebbs and flows and, and politics around it all. Um, the bottom line is, is that the, the capability that we brought and how much money we had invested into it and uh, the TRL level of, of, of that platform in and of itself would have been transformational you know to for the dod to invest in early on but as you mentioned there is 
the bureaucracy, right? And that bureaucracy and the relationships that you need to form in order to um, to bring that money to your tech is it's it's an arduous undertaking. And I certainly didn't know that how it was all going to roll out 15 years ago, but I learned a lot of lessons along the way about that. And so you become more tactical in your in your thinking and strategic. Um, you know, you have to be able to know your enemy, right? Sun Tzu. Right. We're really appreciative of the work you've done, Elise, to help out the warfighter. Kind of coming from this at a business angle, Warner and I don't invest in companies that we can't understand, number one. So like rocket rocket propulsion systems are not in our wheelhouse. And then second is we look for mature businesses. We look to put money to work in things that we can predict the cash flows going out 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, 50 years. We, we, we look for steady eddies. So these are kind of businesses that we're, we're fascinated with because they're helping out the guys on the ground. They're helping out our, our teammates, but it's, it's things that are kind of outside of our expertise. One and two, we don't have a lot of confidence that we could predict the future cash flows. Warner, any, Warner, any thoughts on that? Yeah. So I'm glad, I'm glad Marty brought me back to, uh, to ground zero because when Elise was talking about, about a UAV platform with a better quality engine, I'm thinking, man, maybe we could get some investors and get this thing going. And then Mario, Mario, as my partner, always brings it back to ground zero, which is we're we're looking what's like Warren Buffett. We're looking for what's repeatable and predictable, and we're looking to buy it at a great price when everyone else is freaking out about that business or they're freaking out about the economy. So yeah, I, I agree with Mario in terms of. Uh, well, me personally, I'll put 90% of my assets into what Mario's talking about and possibly 5 to 10% into some speculative stuff just for fun. Uh, that Does that answer your question? Yeah, it sure does. I think um, Warner and I kind of share a similar investment philosophy that you want to get to a position in life where you have some predictability in your life and that pro provides you some freedom. Uh, we live in an unfree world. Unfortunately, uh, it's getting less and less free. Uh, I would argue that our parents or our grandparents had a lot more freedom. Now they weren't as financially as uh, well off as we are, but our, our grandparents and, and even great grandparents had a lot of personal freedoms that we don't enjoy anymore. So to get to a point to kind of get back to an area where you can move about in ease and move where you want to go, you got to have some financial wealth. And that's kind of the first step is build that financial platform. And then you can go out and do these passion projects. If that's UAV technology and increasing, and and it's profitable, it's there's people are going to win in that space. It's just I don't know who. That's that's our problem. Is it's hard to predict who wins. Um, but that could be something later on is like a patch passion project that you get involved with down the road. Any thoughts on that, Elise? Well, thank you for um, asking about my thoughts on that front. And I think that the what, one thing I'd like to say is about the suite of capabilities that we bring to bear are there are the comp they're very complementary because vault not only can be um utilized for fires right for uh isr and for, for force projection um but also can be a delivery system for unmanned air vehicles so we're looking at marrying up the two technologies and being able to you know provide um hypersonic delivery systems for for even the um, you know for natural disasters and delivery of, of into to uh, of of medical supplies and life saving um, you know 
medicines to remote areas. Um, that's there is a commercial application for that. There's also a lot of commercial applications for for vault. Um, you know, ultimately you, you're looking at long range hypersonic travel. You know, point to point travel. So there's there are numerous applications down the road. But we take a very stepped approach um, to the development of vault, which is unique. And we're also not just targeting one market. So for instance, our most of our competitors, I can't say all for sure, but the vast majority, at least within the commercial access to space side of the side of the house, um, they are they're targeting one market and we are targeting multiple all the way to space. I'm gonna pivot the conversation slightly. Elise, I wanna recognize you as having tremendous courage to call things out, to call to call error out in, in our society and really in the world. Uh, we've, we've become friends kind of online first of actually don't think we've actually met at Marine Corps Warfighting Lab. Maybe we, we crossed paths, but I don't remember you exactly. But um, you, you have tremendous courage uh, that you've cultivated to call some things out in our nation. And that kind of transitioned us to our fourth topic is nation building. Um, can you kind of explain uh, your thoughts and the way ahead on the social media and how you're building your personal brand and growing your personal brand and also having the courage to call things out. That's very kind of you for saying that. I really appreciate your acknowledgement of um, of the risk um, that that one takes when they decide to to take a stand about something that is of tremendous importance and value to them. You know, uh, despite the potential fallout and the likely fallout that that comes with that. Um, you know, you have to stand for something, you know, and this is this past year and two months was a very, very difficult one um, on so many fronts. And I conduct a lot of extensive open source intelligence gathering, and it's, it, it has fed a lot of my strategic planning over the last 15 years. And I through that process, I've started to understand the nature of the beasts that we're dealing with um, on a global level. And I really believe that uh, that that if you put your heart in the, into what it is that you're doing and that you speak your truth, that the right people will come your way, like yourself. You know, you've been you were very kind, and I can't tell you how much it warmed my heart when you reached out to me to thank me for what I was doing. And I've had the pleasure of meeting many folks who are also feeling the same way because I've done that. So I think that it's there's a part of the there is a brand element to it all. I mean, I'm, we're trying to flip a lot of things on their head with respect to not only our, you know, our disruptive technology, but how we how we take that and bring it back to the people. Like, I really believe that we owe it to our veterans. We owe it to our taxpayers who have experienced multiple decades of decline as they are right now again. And and this is the the worst of the worst uh, what's happening right now. And I really would like to help to help change that in some capacity. Does that make sense? Yeah, it sure does. Warner, can you jump in here and kind of give them, give your perspective on communication, effective communication, how we can, how we can speak truth and love and do it in a way that's power, empowering people and, and not tearing people down. Can you kind of bring that, tie that into this, this, uh, yeah, so it starts off with what Elise was saying concerning starting off with, with your passion. That's essential. If you're not passionate, your communication is going to be weak because you're going to be constantly second-guessing yourself. You're going to be looking outward for others' approval. Should I be doing this? I don't know. What do you think? Those are all, all, all 
I would say weak conversations in your mind and, and going outward that will prevent you from, as we talk, Mario and I talk a lot about performance, which is creating a plan with measurable results, action items, and timelines. When you align your passions with your plan, your communication goes through the through the effing, I'm not, that's not a swear word, Mario, through the effing roof. And what I mean by that is your communication, you may not be effective at getting your passion or your plan across, yet you are effective in your energy and and your drive and people will see that and, and they may give you, they'll give you the benefit of the doubt even if you're not communicating effectively. So it all, it starts with your passion, it starts with your plan and I can tell that Elise, what she's bringing to the table, she's bringing what this podcast is all about which is creating well, I'm not sure if it's a highly profitable business, but at least she's creating a business that's that will employ others, have game-changing technologies, reduce you know consumption of of certain types of uh, fuels, and enable people to do things at a more co- cost-effective manner, which is essential in today's world where we have inflation in certain areas, which are crippling businesses, and it will also break strongholds in certain industries. So I think her passion and her drive, just the passion drive alone, that plan, like she said, it'll bring people into your life and just her stand, that will create a level of communication when other people come in, that snowball will get bigger and bigger and bigger. Does that does that answer your question? It does, Warner. Thanks for sharing that with us. Um, I'd also like to talk about censorship. So Warner and I talk a lot in kind of code words or brevity codes and also call signs. And we've kind of used that as we've gone through this last year and a half or year and a couple of months to not get censored. So Warner and I will refer to things like the cerveza sickness and, and no, we didn't have too many adult beverages last night, or we'll talk about an injection and it kind of diffuses the energy and it, it, it makes people think one, what are they talking about? And two, it kind of, it lowers everyone's, um, anxiety towards a political issue and bring it just back into caring about people, caring about yourself, caring about others, caring about your family and your community. Um, at least you had, we kind of had an exchange online that got, let's say taken down and you were able to capture it and kind of show the world, Hey man, we're being censored for just complimenting each other and, and, and speaking truth and love. Can you kind of describe what we, what kind of our interaction and what you did to show the world? Thanks Mario. Uh, yeah, so I, you have to, I've, I've had to adapt, um, on the fly to the level of censorship that I've encountered now, long before I decided to, uh, speak out about what was transpiring in my, my perspective on that based on all of my extensive research, which is incessant, uh, and, uh, it crosses multiple critical domains of information, um, and, I was start, I started experiencing censorship heavily and increasingly more from the t- because it, on day one my all my red flags went up so I just proceeded to change the focus of everything that I was doing just centered to vault um, and and look and put a different topic and subject matter at the center of a mind map so to speak and I start, started doing research and connecting the dots and creating a picture that isn't what necessarily what's being portrayed out there so um, yeah. When about, I think it came down to uh, about March. No, it was actually, uh, I'm sorry, May timeframe. Uh, I started getting more and more heavily censored. By June, I couldn't even access through academic databases. We're being 
full-on scholarly articles that are published out there. Um, they were they were stripping my information from 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 my request. So if you do an interlibrary loan request or something, if they saw anything that triggered, uh, you know, the wrong sorts of uh, you know objectives, right? Or you 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 look like you're headed towards discovering something that maybe they don't want you to understand, or put the piece or put the pieces of the puzzle together about. Um, they just started. I couldn't even use Google by come summertime without having major problems with being able to access the same information that several months prior I was able to, to access. So the, uh, the, when it came to your exchange with me, uh, that was a trick I had learned from uh, healthcare, a medical professional that's out there speaking some truth to power. Um, and there are m multiple doctors trying to do that as well, healthcare professionals, medical professionals, frontline workers, um, you know, and they're all being censored. Uh, in one way, shape, or form. So one of those tricks, I mean, a lot of this is algorithmically triggered. So changing the language like you referenced um, can help to ease that as well as being able to screenshot every post that you make so that if you have a, you know, you have a, some censorship that occurs, I don't believe that they're entirely geared towards, towards um, the algorithms aren't geared towards being triggered by an image. They see language. Um, at least that's been that's been working for for a few months. So, uh, CR, a friend of ours, uh, is the person who actually taught me how to do that. Um, so I've just been copying and pasting and doing that constantly. Every single post that I that I that I make that I know could trigger uh, censorship um, or you know kickback from from LinkedIn is um, is what I do. And CR CR is our friend who is. In the medical communities, he's definitely tied into the Cerveza sickness. Can you kind of describe what CR's background is, and then the post that we responded to, and kind of had our exchange, and then the kind of the out, what what came out of that post, and how you how you kind of showed that to the world? Sure, uh, CR. Yes, uh, he is a clinical pathologist, and uh, he his grandfather, uh, you know, fought in Vietnam and, uh, and he's a patriot and he cares about our country and he sees what's happening, not just in, in, on, in terms of the, the medical tyranny, but across the whole, the, the, the global picture of this all and the trajectory that we're headed in and it's frightening. Right. And so it, again, it comes back to my statement about taking a stand. And as much as I have to lose, um, if, if, things continue the way that they are, then, you know, we're, we're headed for a lot of pain. And I don't want to see our country or its people or its citizens suffer completely unnecessarily for the, the sake of power and profit consolidation of, of interests that, that are not necessarily ours at all, you know. Um, so CR uh, was posting about a an article about, they came out of NBC um, that was, basically uh, a statement from Fauci. Uh, he was, I think it had to do with masks and wearing masks um, two years from now and people deciding to wear masks. If I, if I recall correctly, was the, was the, was the post. And then you had stated something very kind to me, um, you know, show of support out there and they censored uh, your post and uh, my exchange with you as well as that post. So I then, took screenshots thinking that it might and then reposted our screenshots, uh, the screenshots of your exchange with me and then reposted CR's um, reposted uh, 
reposted um, image from that article. So I just backed him up, you know, like uh, I had his back and I'm like, I'm going to, I just keep on doing that with him as much as I possibly can because we shouldn't be censored for things that are, are, are accurately sourced uh, from people that are, you know, the folks that are, the, the narrative is coming out of the very, the very entity that, that that article was posted on and from the person who actually stated the words. So there's really, it's, it wasn't like there, there was any twisting or manipulation of any words. It was just censored unnecessarily. Yet. So does that answer your question? Yeah. Thank you for kind of describing that and, and doing that. You had, you were, you had everybody's back in that situation and you were able to, I think maybe you projected that it would be censors for some reason, because I was agreeing with you or I was thanking you and, and encouraging you to continue on your path of exposing, you know, the power and consolidation of wealth in the hands of few. So I appreciate you doing that. And then um, I guess I'm going to transition us to our last, our last um, topic of discussion. Before I do that, I just want to make sure at least you understand that you're surrounded by a bunch of friends, even though we're, we're miles apart, you have a lot of friends in this nation that are looking out for you and there's no reason to be in fear. Uh, we're going to, we're going to operate uh, with strength and we're going to come together. If that, if that means we're all moving to Maine or we're going to move to Wyoming or something, that's what we're going to do is we're not going to, we're not going to operate out of fear. We're going to do this with strength and power. Uh, Cause we're, we're there's, there's, there's many of us. We're not, we're not outnumbered. Um, yeah. So the last topic we're going to discuss is how to never run out of funding during a building project. I kind of come from a different angle probably than uh, both Warner and Elise. Um, I look at this as calculating the cost. So before I do anything, I look at what is the total cost? Let's back this thing out. And, and, and it comes from uh, a physician. Uh, his name was Luke. He was also a historian many, many years ago and wrote, uh, wrote two, two books of the Bible, um, Luke and Acts. He's a major author by by volume, that's actually more than the entire New Testament. It's just the two books that Luke wrote. So massive thinker. And he wrote some letters to a Theophilus in, uh, in Greece or in, in, in somewhere in ancient Rome or Greece. Anyway, uh, it's for, Luke 14, 28. It talks about how to calculate a building project. And there's probably a metaphysical aspect to that as well. Warner, any thoughts on uh, how to not get too far out of your skis when you're going through a construction project or a, a business venture? Yeah, so it, what it comes down to is creating a plan. And at least Mario and I talk about, I also have a, another website called Pro Guidebook. And in that website, I talk about what performance is. Most people actually don't understand performance at its core. The Marine Corps does understand that. Where they have a challenge is really inspiring people to operate in sort of an entrepreneurial environment. That's a whole other subject. The, the point is, is performance is you're how I define it is your uh, your effectiveness at fulfilling on measurable results by taking effective actions within certain timelines. So what that means is, let's say I want to do uh, a building project. Well, I want to redo a fourplex. How much is it going to cost uh, redoing that fourplex? Let's say I'm going to put in $300,000. Well, before I buy that fourplex, let's say now I'm thinking about buying that fourplex, I want to know that cost. Because let's say I buy the fourplex for 700K, I put in 300,000, now I'm at a million, right? Well, now I want to determine from those costs if the rents I'm getting for that fourplex will support those costs. And now I also want to determine those rents and future rents, does it give me a margin of safety if I lose a renter or two? I'm still meeting my, my basic mortgage costs. But the point is, is you always want to determine what's your margin of safety? And I would say most people don't do that. They don't think about buying an asset and thinking, hey, 
I'm going to wait to buy this asset as a great value. I'm going to put some money into the asset. And once I'm done putting that money into that asset, what's my margin of safety? Mara, your thoughts on that? Oh, excellent points, Warner. You, you got it right. You, you got to first, before you're spending money, you did a million dollar construction project up in Wyoming uh, in September of 2020. And before you went into that, you had a detailed timeline, a detailed accounting of, of the costs, the labor, what exactly was going to go on, on in that project. And then you flipped it over and said on the back of the back of the paper, what are we going to get if we put this million dollars into this? What are we going to get out of this? And is it worth it? And, and right now, a year later, or coming up on a year, at less than 10 months later, you're at 99% occupancy in that building. So I, I congratulated you on that math, that math problem you did in Gillette, Wyoming. At least I want to kind of pivot back to you. you you've survived 15 years in ventures. Um, you've kept, kept your businesses afloat and you've had to pivot, obviously, through multiple recessions and different administrations. These projects last a lot longer than four or eight years in one political administration. Can you kind of describe to our listeners how you've managed to fund your business and keep That's a very good question and an important one to ask, I might add. Um, I believe that uh, it's important that um, people understand how complicated it truly is to try and break into our industry with as a small business, um, you know, that is is not only challenged because of the cost of FAR based contracting, which of course we can talk about contracting and, and it's and the other mechanisms that are available on another podcast at some time. But um the 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 side of the the funding model uh was was originally we tried to go the traditional path. Way. Okay, so most most of my colleagues, uh, you know, and our my counterparts in industry, they go the venture capital pathway. Um, the venture capital community um, would not uh, fund unless DoD funded. So we tried that first, right? And then there, in order to do their due diligence on our capabilities, they were leaving that up to to the defense industry, you know, to the, our military customers to, to vet and then be able to say, okay, yes, we sign off on this technology um, and then, then they move into place, right? So it's kind of, it's kind of unique uh, and backwards a little bit. Uh, but at the end of the day, we, had, we ended up investing, my business partner um, in, reinvested uh, an, almost another half a million dollars into from 2014 when we spun off Vault Enterprises. So his life savings that he had accumulated through under applied thermal sciences in order to get the funding that we now have from our government customers. So um, it was a lot of personal skin in the game and um, commitment and, and, and uh, diligence, you know, just just pushing the bill and never stopping. We, have, we, we had to invest all of our, our entire life savings into, to, to be able to get to this point. So that's not a traditional pathway for most people, even as, especially those who have demonstrated, a history of demonstrated success with you know, developing from, from a clean sheet of paper to commercial, commercializing disruptive and extraordinarily um, you know, uh, advanced tech capabilities that are that are desperately needed um, by our military, by the way, you know, and instead uh, of of being able to once. OK, let me back up on that. You might want to like edit that out. I apologize for my stammering there. It's just hard because I I look at the whole the system in it, the whole military industrial complex is extraordinarily uh, challenging for for small companies, period. But when you add in the connection between how big industry, the big prime 
sometimes fund the um, fund all of the tech accelerators like the like uh, tech stars and, uh, or isn't that is starburst those the, the entities that are ultimately have an interest in your technology either acquiring it you know or stopping it from coming into play are influenced at that right down at the at, at, on Wall Street and at you know on the street streets of Silicon Valley, for God's sakes, you know, they, they're all tied together. And so we had to look at how we might disrupt that model of funding. And we have, um, we have great plans with respect to involving people on the ground. We are really focused on remaining a privately owned company. We'll also be an employee owned company. And we are very focused on hiring and making successful the people within our company everybody so we're we're looking for a lot of great men and women who've served in our military to come join our team um, and we really want to help give back to to solve the problems that are claimed to be unsolvable by our by our um, you know by Congress you know in our local politicians and so we're just going to uh, we are also going to be targeting um, STEM education across the country. You know, really, we've we're, we've been in decline on that front. Uh, we haven't advanced our curriculum in engineering, for example, since the 1960s, and sort of everything else has gone by the wayside along with that. So, how do you how do you help facilitate a continuous continuous innovation and entrepreneurship, and then avoid the same complications that we had with breaking into the industry? So, it's about building that ecosystem and ensuring that they understand, uh, aligning yourself with people who understand the model that you're trying to um, to bring to fruition is of benefit to them as well. So we're going to be giving a lot of the profits of especially our, our, our um, military markets you like the, the the applications the commercial applications for the, the units that we're that we're going to be um, demonstrating here over the next couple of years those we're going to be giving a portion of our profits um, back to you know our the our men and women who served in our military and the communities from which they hail and trying to support intrapreneurship um, within our company and continuous innovation because we have a lot of IP that we already need to commercialize but we want to make sure that people have the opportunity um, to grow themselves within our company as well as provide uh, new space entrepreneurs an opportunity to participate in this industry which is extremely um, exclusive um, and and leaves out a lot of people so does that make sense it does. You brought up some really interesting points, at least. Um, yeah, the way you guys have gone about this is really the backbone of our country. Small businesses, um, they account for less than 50% of the, uh, so there's less than 50% of the economy um, comes from small businesses, but it's like 43 to 47%. It's it's a number that escapes me right now, but it's, it's a large Large, large percentage of our economy is small businesses. Those businesses have 50 or, or uh, 50 or less employees. They're kind of the backbone. They're, they really are the backbone of our economy. If we don't produce goods and services uh, and compete, our GDP is going to go down and continue to decline. And it's going to really cause a lot of havoc. The most, Warner and I have discussed this in great detail. The most dangerous thing in the world is a young man without a job. Uh, that you go, you go to any community, any third world nation, you find a lot of young men that are unemployed and it's a nightmare. Uh, so your, your courage to go out there and self fund and build this business up from the ground up and your business partner basically putting his life saving to this business, although it's not an approach that Warner and I take, 
we have tremendous respect for that approach. And if it doesn't work out, you know, these, nothing's guaranteed in life. Anything can fail, um, but we always can fall back on our skills and we can just homestead like the Amish do in Pennsylvania or up in Maine where you're at. Warner, any thoughts on that? Yeah, Elise, Mario and I would like to acknowledge you for coming on this call. Sec- second of all, we'd like to acknowledge you for the courage it takes to put all all your eggs in one basket and do it from a passionate standpoint where you are you're supporting the warfighter, the Marines, and then the commercial applications that come of it. And then also you're taking part of that money and giving back to the to the community, whether it's the local warriors or it's the schooling to improve the engineering program. And I think Mari would agree with me, telling me if you don't, I would love to have Elise come back on and do a whole conversation on private to government funding, how they overlap for a small business. I think that would be a fascinating conversation for one hour just on funding. Your thoughts and finish out, Mario? Absolutely. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna bring Elise back on. She'll be a, she'll be a hit on this podcast. Um, we'll give you the closing words, Elise. It's been uh, it's, we're, we're coming up on an hour, so you, you'll have the last uh, the words here. But uh, thank you again for coming on and sharing your thoughts with us. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. I'm incredibly um, honored to to come and uh, be a guest on your podcast, and I'm extraordinarily grateful for your service. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Um, I have a lot of love for our men and women in uniform. So, um, and I believe that everybody, if they're empowered and provided the pathway and, and, and can see the value, um, of, of what it is that we're trying to accomplish, uh, one little step back on before we wrap it up to completely is that I think crowdfunding is really a, a, a rolling series of crowdfunding that you understand they raise the limits on that and uh, to I think just over five million which opens up an opportunity especially if you're if you understand the margins are are, are can afford it like a, a, you know we have to match that money with that we get from the DoD in order to um, ensure that they don't own um, the IP, right? So we're on that pathway and we're going to hopefully be able to garner a lot of support from um, veterans and active duty uh, military that will then own our company. We're going to do equity equity crowdfunding for that pathway forward. So thank you so much for your time today and for having me on your program. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Red to Black podcast. We really appreciate you taking time out of your day to listen to our podcast. If you would like to connect with us in the future, you can find us on LinkedIn. Simply search for Warner Minchel or Mario Parzino. Also, you can find a link to our LinkedIn profiles in the profile section of the podcast. Thank you again for listening and we look forward to connecting with you in the future. Thank you.